I am excited about the upcoming May 7th uh, event with Convoy of Hope, but I'm more excited about the connections that churches are making with churches in that zone and about the city uh, working in concert with the churches. And we are just really uh, pleased that Greg Burrs could be with us here today. We're honored that you're here with us, Greg. And I'd like for you to give him, as our city manager, a warm welcome. Will you do that? Thank you, Kevin. As Kevin was talking, I was thinking of that old African proverb, uh, when you pray, move your feet. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about here. I'm going to move through these slides pretty quickly. Uh, if you remember nothing else that I say this morning, which I'm with the government, you may not. Uh, thank you. Thank you for what you're already doing for our community. Thank you for giving me the time to tell this story uh, this morning. And uh, I, the reason I'm here, even though I'm going to go through this very quickly, I think this is the one key to the future of our community. Now, from what I do in my day job, I have kind of a unique perspective. I get a chance to see a lot of things. But I will tell you that I think in my heart, this is the key to the future of our community. I don't say that lightly. So, I will also give you this little caveat. This may make you uncomfortable. Okay? I may break some bubbles, but that's okay. I'm going to move back here. We're going to show you a series of heat maps. I'm a visual learner. So when my staff at the city brought me data, we said, okay, well, okay, show me what that looks like on a map. Now, this is a map of Springfield. That's what Springfield looks like. Um, kind of get your bearings of where we are. We're down the bottom left, of, just off the Springfield map right now. So it kind of raises the question of why should you care? So let's go, we're going to flip through a couple of slides here. I'm going to show you, and I would, what I'd like for you to do is, I'm with the government, it has to be simple, red is bad, green is good. So 2014, you can't read, you probably all can't see the, the legends down here, 126 to 191 violent crimes in that year in that neighborhood that's red. That's 2014 data. Now as we go through this, look for the trends. There's the trend on violent crime. It's gone up a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. Property crimes. Fire calls. That's both fires and medical emergencies. Median household income. Now, the red is 12300 to 23000 That's the median household income. Unemployment. That's 15 to 22% unemployment in the red. Educational attainment, only 13 to 21% have an associate's degree or higher in the red. Starting to notice a trend? Low birth weight babies. Can you tell where the hospitals are? Teen birth rate. I think that's staggering. Mothers on Medicaid. Food access. This requires a little bit of description. Every white dot is where you can get fresh, fruit, fresh food, not ho-hos like I eat, but fresh fruits and vegetables. The green around it is a half-mile walking radius, because a lot of these people, especially in the Northwest Quadrant, don't necessarily have transportation, so they're walking to the grocery stores and they're carrying their groceries home. So we thought, well, that's fair, a half-mile walk. Uh, of course, if you're a single mother of three, that becomes difficult too. The red is what we call the food desert, combination of lack of uh, ready access to fresh food and low income. Those two things combined, that's the red. Play spaces, if you're keeping track of what's going on with childhood obesity rates, you know why that is important. Owner occupancy of homes. Foreclosure rates. Service requests that came into the city of Springfield where you're complaining about your neighbor. Now you could say, well, these are tattletales, or you say they've got more things to complain about. I think that's probably the case. Presidential election voter turnout. What's that tell about the hope, the level of hope of the people in those red neighborhoods? There's the voter turnout rate. We're going the wrong direction. Student mobility. Now imagine being a teacher in one of these classrooms 
in the red where the mobility rate was 80 to 100%. That doesn't mean the entire class turned over in a year, but it means a lot of those students are in and out of those classrooms. So that chair may be filled by six different students during the year because they come in, they stay for a couple weeks, and they're couch surfing, so they're moving somewhere else into another school, and they're just constantly moving from school to school. How do you learn? How do you teach in that kind of a situation? Free and reduced lunch trend. If, probably if you only pay attention to one slide, that's probably the one I would ask you to really pay attention to. And the next slide shows the trend. Tell me how we're doing. It's getting worse. And I guarantee you, if I'd have stopped you on the way into church this morning, and I'd have stopped and asked each one of you, what do you think our free and reduced lunch trend is? Very few would have said over 50%. We're over 50%. We've been over 50% for the last couple years. One in four of our children in Springfield is living in, under the poverty level. One in four. Look around this congregation and imagine one in four living below the poverty level. Earlier when I said, why should you care? I still think that is the most important question for us to consider. Empathy. I don't live in poverty, so why should I care about whether it's happening elsewhere in our community? And that's the biggest challenge I think that we have. Not just our community, every community that's dealing with this. And we can't ignore it. But ignoring it is kind of like saying, well, gosh, there's a hole in your end of the boat. And I think we're all in the boat together. And so this graphic shows that some of us are up on the dry end of the boat, and some of us are bailing like crazy. And my guess is many of you know where you'll sleep tonight. You know that you'll have a meal or two today, and you know where your kids are going to sleep. And there's a whole bunch of people in our community that live in a completely different world that is foreign to us. Absolutely foreign to us. So we could keep doing what we're doing. There's a lot of great work being done in our community, and I don't want to discount that work in any way. This church, a lot of churches, nonprofits, there's great work being done. But you saw the way we're trending. So we could pat ourselves on the back and just say, well, we're just going to do some more of that. And we know exactly where we're headed. Or we could try and do something a little revolutionary. And if you can't do it in Springfield, Missouri, where could you do something revolutionary? You can do it here. So, my Paul Simon quote, make a new plan, Stan. <laughs> For every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and absolutely wrong. And don't we all know people who, who know the answers? But don't we know the answers, right? Because we know a lot about poverty, right? I mean, I've got Netflix. I know a lot about poverty. I've seen it on TV. I've seen it in movies. I've seen it in TV shows. So obviously, I know a lot about poverty. I was asked a couple years ago to co-chair the Impacting Poverty Commission. I didn't know what I didn't know. I learned a lot about poverty that I absolutely did not know. And so five observations. Addressing poverty is very, very complicated. This is a very complex, multifaceted issue. There is no silver bullet. Don't we wish we could just write a check and then it'd be done? Right? That's not going to work. This is hard. This is really hard. Any solution is going to take us all out of our comfort zones. So when I told you about breaking some bubbles, that's what I'm talking about. And we do have the option of ignoring it. We do. That is an option. So, but if we, as a community, elect not to ignore it, then we know that whatever the solution is, is not going to be a simple solution. There is no magic bullet. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be multifaceted. And that becomes a challenge because how do I give you the elevator speech? What if Pastor Short had said, come in and do this and, and explain it to him in three minutes? I can't do it. It's complicated. So, if I just challenged you and said, okay, fix it. If this is the biggest issue we're going to face in two decades, over the next two decades, and I challenged you, what would you do? But don't talk about it, because it's uncomfortable to talk about. But go fix it. Step one, you've got to raise awareness, which is why I'm so thankful that Kevin and the elders here have invited me to come speak to you. And I'm doing this at a lot of churches. The faith community has responded like crazy. It's amazing. 80 churches on our way to 400. So the faith community is going to be involved in this. And we've got 
a whole bunch of smart people have been working on this over the last couple years. And there's four initiatives I want to just talk briefly about. The Zone Blitz, the Northwest Project, the Convoy of Hope event that you're involved in, and the Impacting Poverty Commission. The Zone Blitz is where we actually went into the neighborhoods. So we went into that Northwest Quadrant, had nine different neighborhood meetings. We invited partners. Now when I say we invited partners, we invited partners. So the presidents of universities, the CEOs of hospitals, and I guarantee you there were a lot of people of our partners, representing our partner organizations, that went into these neighborhoods for the very first time. Had never been there, had never seen, didn't know where the schools were. So we all went, we invited the neighbors, had tremendous turnout from the neighborhoods, and we all went to elementary schools and sat in really short chairs. And this is what came out of those nine meetings. These were the things that consistently came up over and over and over that the neighbors told us this is what needs to so, grassroots. This is the neighbors telling us this is what needs to be done. We are now up to 156 partner organizations, 267 individuals, and we've got these 11 topic teams going like crazy. And these are topic experts combined with neighborhood residents, combined with everybody else. There's the list of partners. I'd like to read that to you. No, I won't read that to you. But it gives you an idea. I mean, isn't this Springfield? Isn't this the way we respond? The amazing thing is we've asked these organizations, some large, some small, to participate. And you know what? We haven't told them what we want them to do yet. They signed up because they saw the same heat maps you saw. And they said, we want to be a part of the solution. Tell us what you want us to do. There's an article on the front page of the newspaper today. Thursday night, we had a meeting specifically trying to decide what do we want them to do. That's churches, businesses, nonprofits. Hospitals, universities, you've got a ton of people and resources available. Now we've got to connect the dots. So what about families? Well, this is a really cool project. So when the Community Foundation of the Ozarks saw the heat maps, they said, we've got to do something too. So they created the Northwest Project. The Northwest Project is $1.3 million of privately raised money to try and raise 200 families in the Northwest Quadrant of Springfield out of poverty over the next five years. That's cool. If that works, that'll be a model that will probably be adopted nationally. We've got some cutting edge stuff going on in Springfield that not a lot of people are aware of because it's sort of like boiling a frog, you know, you know how to boil a frog. You, do it slowly and they never notice. This stuff is happening slowly, and so we kind of take it for granted, but there's a lot of great stuff going on. You're aware of the Convoy of Hope event. This is a tremendous event. This is the same size and scope and scale of event that they would do in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Denver, Chicago, and they're going to do it in our backyard, in their backyard. And so it's amazingly powerful to have a partner like Convoy of Hope in our own backyard offering to help. The Poverty Commission got together two years ago and put together the Impacting Poverty Commission report. And the amazing thing, you don't have to know all the details about the report, but the amazing thing is the degree of overlap. You've got community leaders from throughout the community addressing poverty and they came up with pretty much the same stuff that the residents came up with. So we have a pretty good sense, and even though we're making this up as we go along, and we fully admit it, we've never done this before. We're making this up, but we have a pretty good feel that it's the right thing to do. The Poverty Commission set a goal of trying to reverse this trend. So that's Greene County. I told you that City of Springfield's poverty rate's even higher. Ours is 26%. Greene County is currently at 20%. And you can see the direction we're headed, which is the red dotted line. So if we just keep doing what we're doing today, we'll be on the red line trajectory. That's where we're headed. Or we can try and do some new things and some different things and engage the rest of our community and change that trajectory. Poverty Commission said this is a big elephant. How do you possibly help people get their minds around this? So we divided our recommendations by sector. So there is a, a group of recommendations for the business sector for the government sector, for the legislators, for the Poverty Commission itself, et cetera, and including down at the bottom, the faith-based organizations. So the next slide shows you, oh, not this slide. So this is the first time I think that local government has, in Springfield has ever gone to the faith community and said, we need your help. 
We can't do this alone. This is not the old vending machine model of government. I paid my taxes, I put my coin in, I made my selection, I pulled the lever, now go fix it. Does anybody in this room think government can fix poverty alone? No. Can we do it together as a community? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the only way we can do it. So those are the action items that were allotted to the faith-based community. Many of those things, faith-based community is already doing. Already doing. If you do one thing and you want to get involved in this, I would highly recommend going through the poverty simulation. Anybody in this room ever been through the poverty simulation? One? Powerful? Yeah. It was the second meeting of the Poverty Commission. We made the entire commission go through there. We had people who changed their attitude about poverty 180 degrees based on a two-hour simulation. It's very powerful, and it will change the way you look at the world. It will change your lens. You can also join a Zone Blitz team. You can contact Cora at that email. You can just help us get the word out about this. This is about awareness right now. Dr. Robert Putnam is a Harvard professor who is the preeminent sociologist of our time. And he was in Springfield on Friday because we invited him. And we shared with him the things that are going on in Springfield. Because again, we're making this up as we go along. We, we would take any advice that he had. Here's what he said. I've spoken at several hundred places about these issues. I don't think there's a place in America that has a more sophisticated understanding of the gap between poor kids and rich kids than in Springfield. His book is called Our Kids. It's about the opportunity gap that is widening between rich kids and poor kids. Why should you care? That's our future workforce. It's our future citizens. It's our future period. So this is my last slide because I feel very strongly about this. This only works if it's a barn raising. This only works if we're all in this together. And that's not just the faith community, that means the business community and the nonprofits and the healthcare community and the education community. And we have 167 organizations from those sectors that have already signed up and said, yeah, we want to be part of this. And if everybody just does a little part, we can get it done. Thank you again for allowing me to have some time. It's not often that, you know, a pastor will give up time from the church to allow the city manager come in and, and tell you this kind of, inf this uplifting information. But certainly, I'd be glad to take questions. I'm with the government. I'm not sure if you can trust my answers, but I, <laughs> yes, sir. Can you email a copy of this presentation? Email a copy? Yeah, we'll, we'll send. Uh, well, actually, they've got, the, got it right back here. So yeah, we can share it with anybody. You bet. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, Linda. If someone was to be in, involved or come into a uh, team, what would their responsibil responsibility be as an individual? It could be as much or as little as you wanted to be a part of the team because the teams have got uh, specific initiatives that they're proposing. And we're, we're probably three to four weeks from finishing the Zone Blitz plan. And so... Once the action items are laid out, you can get involved with any of those. Some of those will be as simple as going on a weekend and helping to clear out brush out of a, an alleyway that the kids want to play in and it's too dangerous. Uh, others could be mentoring people and more long-lasting. So there'll be all kinds of opportunities. My guess is we're going to have a, we're going to call it the menu of, of opportunities. There will be probably 30 to 40 different things to choose from. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Our working definition of poverty, we're using the federal poverty line. Uh, that can be easily debated because it still uses data from back in the 60s and 70s in terms of how it defines. If we used a, what we would probably more commonly call poverty, if you, know, sort of if you see it, um, we'd probably have a lot more people designated as living in poverty than using the federal designation. But we're using the federal designation right now. I can't remember now. It's a, it's a dollar amount of uh, family income which is pretty low. Family of four, I want to say, somebody may know better than me, 12500 a year. It's pretty low. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, we, we have this interesting juxtaposition. In fact, there's a group out of Washington, D.C. that's studying Springfield because of that. We have very low unemployment, 4% unemployment. That's very low. 
we have 26% poverty. So how do you have 4% unemployment and 26% poverty? Those don't go together. Well, you ever heard anybody say, well, those people just need to go out and get a job. But what we've discovered is they have a job. They have two, sometimes three. But low wages, low benefits, and that's attracted a lot of business historically to Springfield is low wages. Well, the reason that we've done that is because our, if you look, study our workforce, our workforce is considered to be low-skilled. And that's why one of the things that we're really pushing on is we can't attract higher-paying jobs until we have a better-skilled workforce. The first thing those employers look for when they are considering, we're, we're competing nationally and sometimes internationally for these jobs, they look at your workforce. So they're looking at our workforce and they're saying, I'm not sure the workforce has the skills necessary, you know, on and on and on, and there's got to be a pipeline of people with those skills. So a large part of what we're doing is workforce development. Once we attract the workforce development side, that will help us attract higher paying jobs and it, rising tide lifts all boats. But we start with workforce development. The key there is we find a lot of people, especially in the Northwest Quadrant, who don't have the social skills, they've never been through a job interview. Uh, they don't know why attendance is important. They don't know how to shake your hand and look you in the eye. So churches have been banding together and putting together these foundation skills, mentoring classes, and teaching people why it's important, how to dress for an interview, how to dress to go to work. So a lot of them want to work, they just they have never experienced that. That's not the way they were raised. But it's, it's, it's an insightful question because that's kind of at the heart of a lot of what we're doing. In fact, Thursday, the uh, Workforce Investment Board in Springfield and Greene County announced uh, at our urging that they're going to put a workforce development job center in the middle of the Northwest Quadrant, which is powerful. Because if you ride the bus to get everywhere, you know it takes a long time to ride the bus to get around the community. Any other questions? Yes, sir. If you go to the city's website and, and click on Zone Blitz, there's all kinds of information there, uh, including contact information if you want to get involved with one of the teams or there's a specific initiative. You know, every team's not going to want to get, or every business is not going to want to get involved with everything. So you may say, wellness is not really our issue, healthcare is not really our issue, but we'd like to help over here with chronic nuisance properties or whatever it might be. We can hook you up with the, the right team. So we're just playing traffic cop in a lot of this. SpringfieldMo.gov. Awesome. All right. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn to the book of John, chapter 15. If you're visiting with us today, our normal fare is to go through a book of the Bible verse by verse. We finished the book of Colossians not too long ago, and, but are just going through a, this chapter of John, and actually just 11 verses, and this is our third week at it, and our series is called Living in the Vine, Living in the Vine from John 15. In previous weeks, we discussed a common problem that exists within churches, and that is that people who pose as genuine Christians but in fact, aren't in the family of God. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us about this problem so that we can start pointing fingers at other people, say, uh, that one's in, uh, no, that one's not. No, it's so that we can take inventory of our own hearts, check and make sure that we are, uh, we're on target. These were the very words of Jesus in Matthew 7. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, those are pretty stern words coming from the lips of Jesus. And we've been discussing a second issue 
And that is that there can be those within the, the, the family of God who take for granted the resources that they have in Christ. They don't take seriously the, the discipleship demands that, that Jesus brings. They fail to use their gifts. They fail to produce fruit. Uh, and this, I think, is what John 15 is addressing. Now, the first group of the posers, that indeed is a problem. We're not denying that that, uh, that, that exists, but I just don't think that's what John 15 is about. Now, Jesus mentioned the word abide ten times in this passage and fruit six times. The idea is that only by abiding in Christ can there be fruit that is produced. Now, nothing can be accomplished, we learned in this passage, nothing can be accomplished in the kingdom of God outside of abiding in Christ. So we're to operate in his strength, have that platform of knowing our relationship with him, operating, being motivated out of love. That's what produces the spiritual fruit. And we defined last week some of the means of abiding. For instance, we deliberately seek Christ. This is not necessarily exhaustive, but I think it's uh, some of the main points. We deliberately seek Christ when needs go unmet. Deliberately seek Christ. Uh, We persevere in our faithfulness and obedience no matter the circumstance. And then we love one another no matter what uh, is going on in our lives. So there's love, perseverance, and uh, seeking Christ in unmet needs. Now, if you look through this passage, you know, you see the vine dresser being God. You see Christ being the vine, uh, people being the branches, uh, Christians being the branches. And we, we take great encouragement in seeing how God operates in, in pruning and, and giving attention and positioning people so that they can produce much fruit. We're to take encouragement from that. That's where we can experience our maximum joy. So let's stand, take a look at John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, and the branch, as the branch, cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In this chapter, we find ourselves today dealing with what is perhaps one of the most difficult verses in the chapter, and might I say, even in the Bible. It's in the midst of this wonderful message that Jesus gives about abiding, and then he talks about branches that are gathered and burned up. What in the world does he mean by that? In order for us to, I think, get to the meat of it, it's going to take some, it's going to take some work. We're going to have to get into a little bit of theology. And it's easy to get lost in the details, to get lost in the weeds, which I often do when I play golf. I'm going to try not to do that here as we are going through John 15. Now, let me remind you that there are three ways in which we can look at this passage. Number one is that believers who are genuinely in the family of God can lose, because of various reasons, lose their relationship with God and be cast into hell. That's how many would view this passage. Now, in my mind, this situation, this kind of uh, interpretation creates, I think, more problems. At least that's the way I view it. And good and godly people disagree, but I'm going to just tell you how how I see it, and you can do with it what you want. For instance, Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me 
has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, whenever we say Jesus saying, truly, truly, you've got to stand a little straighter and realize that he's doing that for effect. It's, it's a way for him to put emphasis on what he is about to say. It's a way of saying, all right, there's no real equivocation here. There's no outs. I'm telling you, this is how it is. Truly, truly. And again, he writes, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, I'm just trying to read this at face value, you know, try to read all the different perspectives, other good, and again, again, I'm not saying I've got all the right answers, but I just see it differently than how others might view it. But for purposes of theological consistency, I don't hold the view that genuine believers can at some point be utterly cast out by God. That's just not where I'm coming from. Now, there's a second interpretation here, that Jesus was addressing people who are posers. In other words, they're not really believers, but they pose as believers by going to church and just doing the religious thing. And it's possible that Jesus might have had Judas in mind. Judas was not in the room as Jesus was talking about uh, John 15, he's already gone, and he already knows, Jesus does, that Judas is the betrayer. And so he's telling the disciples, don't go the way of Judas. Don't want you to follow that guy. Now, being a poser is certainly an issue. I just don't think it's the issue that Jesus is addressing in John 15. And there are reasons why I don't believe that. Number one, he's addressing the disciples. Judas is not in the room. He's addressing the disciples. And, and, I, and I think that it would be a, an odd message to give his closest comrades who are already beleaguered and he knows are going to be facing death and then to just kind of pull the rug out from under him. But, you know, you may not be one of the chosen. It's like, wait, thanks a lot, Jesus. All right. Number two, Jesus uh, declares all of the people in the room to be clean in verse 2. This is a designation of having their sins forgiven. We talked about this last week. He's already said, you are clean. And thirdly, he also calls them in verse 2 that these branches are in me. They are a part of me. That would be an odd verbiage to use if they were posers. And fourthly, if Jesus didn't think that some of these guys were really believers weren't real followers of Christ. What they needed was the, you know, the gospel. They don't need information about abiding or being fruitful. And yet that is what the passage is about. So I don't see it as the first two views. But, you know, I've been wrong before. I could be wrong here. I just don't think so. So it's not losers and not about posers, but I believe that what Jesus is doing is addressing believers that remain in an unfruitful state for an extended period of time and then put themselves in a position where they can receive the discipline of God. I think this view fits in particular with this context and I think fits better with the rest of the Bible. This is what it says. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Thrown away like a branch and burned. Now, this refers to a common practice in viticulture or the the, the care of, of, of grapes and the vines in which unproductive branches are cut off and burned. And he talks about fire. I mean, what does he mean? Well, first of all, let's acknowledge this. That every time that fire is mentioned in the Bible, that doesn't necessarily mean it's talking about hell. People just assume fire, hell. But that's not always the case. For instance, fire can be a metaphor for God just taking his gaze and judging a particular action or or, or situation. 
In other words, it's like a, a purifying effect. And so it would be like a fire to, to teach something. Consider this, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, it says this. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, God's intense gaze. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, you're going to be disciplined when you squander all of these resources that God is giving you, and you will not be rewarded. You will lose rewards. It will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. The fact is, is that people can look good, but on the inside, there can be a lot of rotten stuff that they haven't dealt with. And Jesus is saying, I can see all that. And so, you know, I'm only going to reward the genuine fruit that, that comes out of my life and people that is motivated out of love. You think he's going to reward, let's say, a pastor who's operating out of arrogance and pride and selfishness? No, he might be able to use that person, but he's not going to reward that person. All believers, genuine believers in Jesus Christ, enter heaven, but not all believers are rewarded equally. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now listen, I know when we read, because these are passages that frankly we just kind of skip over and don't even consider, and I'm thinking, man, that just sounds really bizarre. In fact, I've never even heard this stuff before. I'm just trying to take the Bible at face value. I heard one the other day talking about, you know, well, if you're going to believe this particular moral code in the Bible, then how about, you know, these Old Testament codes about shrimp and blah, blah, blah. Well, listen, a fifth grader in Sunday school can explain that. You know, you're, you're talking about issues related to Israel under a theocracy. We are not under the law anymore. So that, that cultural code that was put upon Israel does not apply to us today. But the moral law of God still does apply to us, and we see that restated in the New Testament. But that aside, when we hear talk about Jesus standing at a throne and, and judging people, I'm thinking, you know, is that really going to happen, or is that just maybe a metaphor, you know, kind of to get us off the schneid, just to give us a little motivation, you know, uh, don't be a creep, don't be a jerk, because, you know, maybe there might be something, uh, you'll get one less harp in heaven or something, but don't really take this seriously. I don't view it that way. The way I look at it is, listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe that he did, I mean, historically, you can look at that and look at the evidence, he really did rise from the dead. I got to believe then that he knows what he's talking about when it comes to afterlife. And, and, I, and I believe that these words that we have in the scripture can be taken at face value. If I start picking and choosing and saying, you know, this just is a metaphor and, and can't be taken seriously, the fact is then, is that if you think that some of this is an error and not be taken seriously, why should I take seriously then the stuff about love? Why couldn't have Jesus been mistaken about that stuff? Or why couldn't have Jesus been mistaken about be good to your neighbor? Why wasn't he mistaken about that? Why was he mistaken about the stuff about judgment, but not the stuff about love? Once you start chopping off pieces of the Bible like that and choosing and picking your own stuff, Katie bar the door. I'm just trying to take it at face value in how we approach the book. And once I do that, and I believe, you know what? I believe that God had something to do with writing this. I believe that that's there for us. And when he says there's going to be a reckoning, there's going to be a reckoning. So what John 15, 6 seems to be referring to is that believers will be, will be tended to, pruned, and those who still do not produce fruit... After an extended season, they will face the discipline of God, and in this case, loss of rewards, according to what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. 
They say the discipline of God. I mean, where do you get this stuff? Well, consider, for instance, the case, and by the way, let me just, I feel like I'm getting on a couple soapboxes here, but I'll just go ahead and give it. Um, it's got to be the Holy Spirit, right, if the thought comes to my mind? Huh? We can't have it both ways. We often say, and I'm talking about the, the religious crowd, and I don't care what camp you're in, but most Christians will say that, you know, why doesn't God do anything about, you know, Idi Amin or, you know, Charles Manson? We'll talk about all these things that are, that are evil, Saddam Hussein. Why didn't God stop that? Or why didn't God stop Hitler? We want God to judge. We want God to do something. We want God to intervene and stop it. And we think that somehow God is asleep on the job if he doesn't. But then, when it comes to us and God applying his own discipline to us, it's like, well, you know, I think God is love and God's not going to do that. And, you know, we start, you know, squirming. It's like, well, wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. Either God is really a God who's going to deal with this stuff or he isn't. And if he is, then I'm going to be a part of the equation. And I'm not going to get out from under it. So in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a situation in a church, in the church at Corinth, where a guy was sleeping with his stepmom. I mean, that is fairly egregious. I think most people agree, that's stepping across the line. I mean, even, even if I was a cultural relativist, I would, think, I would say, you know, that's kind of gross, all right? Um, this is what Paul writes and Paul is basically suggesting premature death. And this is what he says. You were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Premature death. The Corinthian church, I'm telling you, they were, that, that, that was a gaggle of hedonists, those Corinthians, all right? They were getting drunk during, write that down, gaggle of hedonists, Okay. They were getting drunk during communion. I mean, it's like, these were, they were partying hardy, all right? Drunk during communion, and then this is what is written. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on, him, on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Premature death for obstinate believers who continually refuse to repent. Now, I can't say with certainty that Jesus had death in mind uh, when he was talking about the discipline of God in John 15. But we do know this, that God will not entertain his children who are flipping them off and abusing his grace. He's going to deal with them. You know, people often say, well, you know, if you believe that, you know, God's never going to let you go, you know, you're just going to abuse his grace. Well, you know what? People abuse the grace no matter what your theology is, but all I'm saying is you're not going to get away with it. <laughs> I mean, no Christian, just like any loving parent, is going to call his kid to an account if they're, you know, if they're being rebellious. God is not going to let his children go without dealing with them. That's a fact. He loves us too much. That's what Hebrews 12 gets into, that God will discipline his children. Now, there are two words that uh, Jesus could have used when he talks about being burned. One is a term that means to burn utterly, as in eternal punishment. That word's used in Luke 3.17 when it speaks of the chaff or the enemies of God that will be burned, and it's translated unquenchable fire, all right? That's one word that Jesus could have used, but he didn't use that word. He used another uh, word that simply means to be singed. It's, it's less severe than that first word. Now, if Jesus would have intended to mean hell in John 15, 6, I think he would have used that more severe word, but he doesn't. And so John 15, 6 seems to indicate that Jesus is referring to the discipline of God. Now, what difference does all that make for us today? 
Well, you know, there's a, there's a popular notion, in, and it runs across any denomination. I'm not just pointing the finger. It could be us, and, you know, we, we live in this culture, and we can allow the world system to kind of eke into our thinking. But there, there's a popular view that, that says, you know, you need to amalgamate a kind of hyper-tolerance that nothing is really wrong. I don't want to judge anybody. God doesn't judge anybody. Um, and then we understand or misunderstand this non-existent view of God's judgment. We throw in a little uh, Oprah spirituality, and what you have is a self-made Christianity perfect for this postmodern age. And you see this in, in attacks upon the Bible, uh, particularly the Old Testament parts that, you know, just are way too uncomfortable for our modern sensibilities. I mean, just give me the love of Jesus, and throw out all that other stuff. I mean, right? Does that not fit the religious age today? The other stuff is just too uncomfortable, and so we, we fit God to our own image. We fit him like a cheap suit. In the December 2015 issue of Vanity Fair, which I have read for years, and I wait at the mailbox every month from my Vanity Fair, in this article, actress Jessica Alba spoke of her early Christian upbringing. And she said that at 17, she was so turned off by all the boundaries of Christianity and ideas, you know, regarding God's judgment. I certainly don't claim to know what is in this woman's heart. In fact, my heart goes out to her. But I'm just going to take her words at face value. And she's typical, I think, of many people. And this is what she said in the article. I feel like at the end of the day, God is love and everyone is human. And the idea is kind of, you know, we can kind of orchestrate our own morality. This theistic universalism is cast aside for maybe, you know, Ayn Rand's ethical egoism or utilitarianism or a relativism, a subjectivism. It could be a, a host of other things. But don't sit here and tell me that God draws a line and I can't cross the line and he's going to be there and he'll deal with me. I mean, come on, that's archaic dinosaur stuff. All right, don't get into that. Well, you can certainly say that God is love. We'd all agree with that. God is love. But that's not all of God, right? I mean, I love my kids, certainly, but that's not all I am when they were in the house. I also had to deal with their stuff, which means we had to confront issues, that there were lines that they crossed, okay? Jesus comes along, and he takes this, you know, modern sensibility that we have in creating God in our own image, and he just blows it out of the water with John 15. And he seems to be saying that, that not abiding, not taking the claims of discipleship seriously leads to three consequences. Number one, when we refuse to abide, we lose intimate fellowship with God. Now, I'm not talking about God casting us out and not having a relationship. We're no longer a son or daughter. No, fellowship is different than relationship. And Jesus says that such a person is, is cast out as a branch. You know, when a branch is cast out, it's not a part of the regular branches. It's not enjoying the fellowship. It's not enjoying what's available. In fact, 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we're liars. You can't purposely cross God's boundaries and then claim, You know what? Me and God, we're like this while I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. Me and God, we're really close. Well, the Bible gives certain boundaries. And we just don't like talking about that. And we don't think that that matters. But you lose intimate fellowship with God. There's no such thing as being close with God while we walk in disobedience. Next, when we refuse to abide, we lose vitality. Jesus says the branch withers. In other words, the, 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 the living juices are no longer running to the branch. There's, there's not that energy there. You remember when King David refused to confront his sin in Psalm 32? And in his case, it was uh, adultery and premeditated murder. That's pretty big up on the list. And he was not 
confronting those issues. And this is what it says in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. That, that Hebrew word means to think about this. Ponder what it was like when I refused to be honest about my sin before a holy God. It sat my strength. Been there. Done that. And what the Bible is doing is giving a, a holistic approach that, that your spiritual life affects your emotional and physical life as well, right? I mean, when I have, when I have this stuff that I'm not dealing with, that it, it, it affects me emotionally, I, I, I'm drained, and even my body, I get stressed, and it negatively impacts us physically. Thirdly, lastly, when we refuse to abide over a long season, we lose rewards, just like we saw in Corinthians. I'm reminded of this this week as I read of another megachurch pastor who went down in flames, um, bullying people around him. None of us are immune, no matter where, whether we're leaders or not. It's easy for us to operate in the flesh or in our own strength instead of relying on the strength that God has for us and allowing our hearts to be clean and, and, and motivated out of love. And man, I stand before you that it is a, you know, it can be a heady thing to get before people and people think that you're close with God just because you're talking. Don't be fooled by the position or by anything else with anyone. The fact is, is that I could be up here as arrogant, prideful. It's possible. You just wouldn't know it, right? That's conceivable. And you know what happens? Even though God may use that, I'm not going to be rewarded. And what I'm saying is, all of us have to check ourselves. That It's not about showing to other people that, you know, we've got our act together. It's about having our hearts right before God, dealing with our own stuff, having ourselves clean before God in the sense of our sin confessed. I'm never perfect. You know, I, I can never say, you know what? I'm never going to be prideful, never going to be selfish, never going to be arrogant. I don't think that's possible this side. But I still seek to... to Deal with my fleshly responses on a daily basis. And that's, I think, what Christ is wanting. As we abide in him, we're being honest before God. We're, we want this fellowship with God not to be unhindered. It's almost like, you know, if I'm in fellowship with my wife, I'm sensitive to her and she with me. I may say a stupid thing, which I do often, and if it hurts her, then you know what? We need to quickly deal with that, all right? And then usually money and diamonds are involved. And then we're okay. Okay? Then we're okay. But with God, that doesn't work. Right? No, Janet is sweet and forgiving. If she wasn't, I wouldn't be here. All right? All right. The point is, we don't want any bitterness. We don't want any worry or fear. That kind of thing. To fester and to take root in our hearts. So, what I want us to be able to do is enjoy that abiding in Christ and experience God's best experiences joy. Let's pray.